The staff always makes fun of me because my sermons are too short. So I'm going to startle everyone. I'm going for an hour today. I'll just settle in. A scripture reading this morning comes from Matthew 16, verses 13 through 19. Listen now that by faith we might hear God's word for us today. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the son of man is? And they answered, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, still others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Jesus said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but our father in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, as always, whenever we read scripture, we need to linger for a moment and understand what is happening here. What is the context of this story? Jesus had gathered and called all of his disciples in Galilee, where they all lived. They had been together for more than a year. Jesus was teaching, telling people parables, performing miracles. They were walking north and east of Galilee one day, and Jesus pauses to give them a little test. After a year of learning, traveling, listening to Jesus daily, for many months, Jesus asked them, what does everybody think of me? And the disciples answered, demonstrating the confusion and misunderstanding that people had about Jesus in that day. And frankly, it's the same kind of misunderstanding and confusion that people have about Jesus in this day. They say something like, well, maybe you're John the Baptist, here to prepare the way for the coming of the Messiah. Or, or maybe you're Elijah, returned from heaven to confront the evil of the world with power and miracles. Or maybe, or maybe you're Jeremiah returned to point out the sins of God's people, maybe get us ready for another exile. Everyone saw clearly that Jesus was something special. He spoke for God with authority. He was fearless. He was not intimidated by the powers that be. But they really weren't clear who he was or why he was there. In their answer, they're throwing out almost random possibilities. Jesus gets that, so he turns to Peter. He kind of backs Peter into a corner. He says, well, that's fine, but what do you say? Now, Peter had been with Jesus the longest. He was bold. He was bordering on reckless like we heard from Beth this morning. That was his style. But he had seen it all. He had heard it all with Jesus. And he answered with uncharacteristic thoughtfulness. Jesus, you are who you say you are. You're the one we've been waiting for all these centuries. Peter says, you are the one that God has sent to usher in a new age. You're the Messiah. And immediately, you can hear Jesus' pleasure in Peter's answer. Yes, Peter, you've got it right. Jesus must be thinking, okay, my work is paying off. My truth can penetrate the hearts of anyone, even gruff old Galilean fishermen. Do you know what the disciples have been doing for almost a year? They were growing in their faith. They had all started somewhere with what they knew, what they had grown up with, what they learned about over their lives. But now they were confronted with something new and different. They had to decide, is this Jesus someone worth getting to know? 
someone worthy of investment of our time and effort, someone whose message is valuable enough for me to work on learning about him. And to be honest, the scriptures are clear. Many people who heard Jesus' message, many of them hesitated. They doubted. They even bluntly turned away from Jesus and his teaching. That's the way it was then. That's the way it is now. It's clear that the disciples knew something important was going on. But except for Peter, they didn't have a really good grasp of Jesus' message. They were drawn to Jesus, but they were still learning. They were still intrigued, yet not where Jesus wanted them to be. Some of you know I have a role here. I'm the resident grandpa in the church. And on occasion, I will chase toddlers around the church to tickle them. When we first start playing this game, they're intrigued. Here's this big, gruff old man chasing them, and they run screaming away from me. Then gradually, they start to understand that this game always ends in tickling. And eventually, they quit running from me, and they just happily accept the tickle. As time goes on, they eventually become so excited about it, when they see me, they run into the church yelling, asking me to grab them. So at first, they're curious, but nervous. But eventually, they are completely at ease and giggling. It takes time for toddlers and disciples of Jesus, people like you and me, to figure out who other people are. Who is this authority figure? Is he scary such that we should just walk away from him? Is he someone we should reject? Is he maybe somewhat intriguing such that we should approach him carefully to see how this plays out? Or do we discover that he is a source of joy and love that we run to with open arms? We usually use the word faith as a noun, something to have, something to hold, something that we share. It's a thing, it's a belief, a trust. But for the disciples growing in their beliefs, learning what was important, sharing that in the context of friends, faith was not a noun, it was a verb. Faced with something unfamiliar and perhaps apprehensive, like toddlers with a grandpa, they were faithing. They were faithing, and their faithing would stretch for many months, eventually even years. None of them ever had it completely right, even Peter. Each of them was in a different place in their faith, but they sensed that Jesus was momentous, even historic. They could see that something was happening, and they invested time in their faithing. Jesus, as he commends Peter on his basic faith, points out that this faith does not come from reading the scriptures or following rabbis or giving sacrifices. Faith comes from God. God embraces those who search for him. And by his spirit, he stirs their hearts and minds. It teaches us to ask hard questions, to seek important truths. When we pray to God, asking for deeper faith, more insight into life, God always answers. He sends fresh insights from sermons. He arranges invitations to study, to grow in spirit, to serve in God's world. And this faith thing, it comes from remembering what you learned growing up. It comes from reading and hearing the scriptures, from learning God's truths, which the disciples of Jesus did regularly. It comes, this faith, from sharing life, from asking hard questions, and then listening for the answers, challenging mysteries, probing what is real and what is not. It comes from living in community, a community not of thousands, but of tens and dozens who wrestle with the big questions of life and then wait for God to bless their investment. That was faithing then, 
And that is faithing now. We are all struggling with the question, who is this Jesus? Can I trust him? Is he who he says he is? And we are all at various stages of wrestling with the answers to those questions. That's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. It's exactly how God intended for us to do our faith at Jesus's feet for the disciples and for us these thousands of years later. Also notice that immediately after acknowledging Peter's correct answer, Jesus does not dwell on it. Faithing is not the point of what they are doing. Faithing is necessary. It's vital. It's critical to the mission of Jesus. But in the end, it's not the end. It's the beginning. Jesus does not say, good job, disciples. Now you have faith. Go home. Study some more. Uh, Do some more faithing. Learn. Dwell on what I've taught you. No, Jesus, in the very next sentence, says to Peter, now that you are on the correct path of faithing, there's work. The work is the point of the faith that Jesus has given you. Your faith is not just for you. It's meant for you to share, to give away, to spend lavishly. He tells Peter, go, create the church. This is the first use of the word church in the New Testament. And it's a translation of an old Hebrew word, which simply meant assembly. Church never referred to a building, a sanctuary, offices, fellowship halls, Christian education wings. Church always referred simply to gathering, assembling, being joined in a body of believers who are asking hard questions. Church was and is wherever two or more are gathered in Jesus' name. We do the same thing with church that we did with faith, and that is we turn it from a noun to a verb. Jesus was telling Peter, start churching. Churching was not about meeting spaces. It was about connecting. Although the New Testament writers frequently use metaphors about cornerstones and capstones, and we can imagine that we are all bricks being laid into a a building of the body of Christ. But it was never about the stones. It was always about the people. Churching is not a place. It's a worldview. It's an investment. People who are churching are still faithing. They're still growing in their understanding and commitment to Jesus. That never ends. But then they're taking another step. They're investing in their family and their friends and their community and in their world. They are encouraging other people of faith. I have met over the years many devout Christians who are seriously devoted to their faithing. But that's as far as they go. They think that faithing is all that must be done. Being a Christian for them starts and ends in a building. We've talked many times over the years about the things that happen when we are churching. One thing that happens in a church is that we gather and learn and become inspired and energized from each other. But the other is that we are sent. We go and we teach and we inspire and energize other people. That's when we encounter people face to face who know at some level that Jesus was something special, but not understanding who he was or why he was here. There's great power in that teaching and inspiring and energizing others face to face. Indeed, it is the only thing that assures the the survival of the church. Faithing and churching. It all began with a simple question. Who do you think Jesus is? And then a simple instruction. Go, assemble with my people. It's a strange thing. 
in those terms, faithing and churching seems to be complex questions, easy to understand and complex instructions, easier to follow. So why do we still find it difficult and complicated? Why do we resist and remain hesitant about faithing and churching? Here's something to consider. In the end, it all comes down to love. People who are faithing acknowledge what we learned and talked about last fall, that God knows us, God loves us, and we are worthy of dying for. We learned that Jesus is the one who loved us so much that he proved we were worth dying for, even to dying on a cross. And people who are faithing realize that the love shown to us by Jesus then generates our love for God. Faithing, investing time to know about Jesus and his love, that sets the stage for us to love others. Faithing teaches us to know and love God because he loved us first, not because we had wonderful skills or assets, but because he loved us. He simply chose to love us. And churching, similarly, is basically an act of love. Churching teaches us how to love others. Scripture says we should love God and then immediately adds love our neighbors as well. Not because of anything they can do for us, not because they're famous or influential. Nothing they have done or could do is needed to win our favor. We love others simply because they are children of God. They are made first in his image and God has placed them in our paths. Churching is loving others. I was recently reading the words of a Catholic priest. His name is James Keenan. He's famous for being an ethicist. Keenan wrote this, Sin is the failure to bother to love. We sin not from weakness, but from strength and capacity. Hear this again. Sin is the failure to bother to love, he said. Not from weakness, but from strength and capacity. Let's break this down. Sin is what separates us from God. We all sin and we can name our sins very easily. Sin is the barrier, the impediment, the distance from God that we ourselves create. And Kenan says, that doesn't happen. Our sin does not occur because we are weak, but rather we sin in spite of the fact that we are quite capable and strong enough to avoid sin. It is simply that we are failing to bother. We're too lazy. We're too distracted to do the faithing and churching that we are called to do. Sin is not due to our lack of strength, but in spite of it. How profound A failure to bother is the takeaway. Consider some transgressions in the list that we all have of our sins. It's not failing to love God wholeheartedly or failing to love our neighbor adequately, which we all do at times, even if we are trying. It's worse than that. We are not even trying. It's being in our own zone, totally self-consumed and constantly absorbed with the self-centeredness of living. We simply prioritize our own pleasure, our entertainment, our pride, so much that we don't even bother with important matters. If you're not bothered about something, that means it's not important to you. It doesn't worry you at all. Failing to bother. We are simply too apathetic to invest the time and effort to learn who Jesus is and what he's calling us to do. So I have a question for you. If this faithing and churching is so important to Jesus, Why do we not value it? What inhibits us from investing the time and effort and resources and growing our faith and becoming committed to Christian community? I suggest to you that uh, it's not because we are too poor. It's not because we're too busy. It's not because we're too important. 
It's simply that we fail to bother to love, to love God and to love others. I have a confession to make. For many years, I was very important, or at least I thought so. I was a professional, and I had several offices and many employees. People counted on me. If I was absent from my work, I was very anxious that things might not go well in my absence. It seemed to me that if I was not at work, the earth might stop spinning on its axis. The sun might refuse to shine. I was a chief of staff in community organizations. I was a nominal attender at church, but I was much too important to be bothered with Sunday school, leadership, faithing, churching. I had a good life. It was a conventional life, and I was quite content. But at some point, like those early disciples, I realized there was something more to life than worldly success and respect, which I realized was shallow and fleeting. People I know who were, who were and I respected People who were faithing and churching began to invite me to engage, to commit, to invest my time and my resources into something more important and bigger. I had time, I had resources, I had gifts, but I could not be bothered to faith and to church. Like those early disciples, I started slow. I understood that Jesus was a nice guy, maybe even a very nice guy who taught some good lessons about how you should behave. I believe the Bible to be an important, though somewhat antiquated guide to right and wrong. Like the disciples, I could not have given you a clear and compelling explanation of Jesus. But as I invested more time and energy in faithing, I grew. My faith got deeper and wider, very slowly, but steadily. For me, it was not like the road to Damascus. I was not struck by a bolt of lightning and knocked to the ground, and the next minute I was a believer. But I began to see that Jesus was who he said he was, that he came why he said he came. And although my faith was not complete and still is not, my churching improved. I learned the incredible power of simply spending time with other people who were faithing and churching. I learned from them as they asked questions, as we all proposed answers, we wrestled with the contradictions of our life. For the last two weeks, Chad and Roland have been discussing stewardships in terms of growing. We're all in various stages of growing, understanding our gifts, our talents, our resources. The only mistake we can make, the only thing we can do wrong, is to fail to bother to love. If we fail, to bother to learn, to understand, to invest the time that we need to invest to know how much we are loved and how much then in return we can love others, then we've dropped the ball. We've wasted our time. All our gifts, all our talent, all our treasure, they will have all been for nothing. The diplomas, the plaques, the trophies, and the ribbons, they will fade to nothing and no one will remember them. But loving God and loving Christ That has lifelong and eternal implications. If we fail to bother to love each other, if we fail to invest time in our churching, then we've wasted those opportunities, wasted those gifts. Faithing and churching. Faithing is how we grow in our understanding and our believing and our loving God for all he has done for us and with us. Faithing is bothering to love, loving a God who created us, a savior who died for us, and a spirit who guides us. Churching 
is also bothering to love, bothering to love others, bothering to allow God to send us out of this building into our neighborhoods, our communities, and beyond. Churching is how we are designed to grow in an assembled family as parents and spouses and siblings and grandparents. Churching is joining Peter in the congregation to become the hands and feet of Jesus in a hurting world. Sin, that evil wrongdoing that we worry so much about, boils down to a simple failure to bother to love. Watch. Watch over the next few weeks and months as our family of faith here at First Pres begins to create spaces, venues, huddles, and opportunities and challenges for you to engage in the faithing and the churching that we are called to do. Many of those venues, those spaces already exist and are functioning beautifully, but we need more of them and we need more of you in them. Each of us are like the disciples. We're puzzled. Our knowledge is incomplete. Our wisdom is faulty. But that does not slow Jesus down. He presses forward, teaching, encouraging, scolding, but always loving us. And we are all like Peter, presented with expectations and encouragement and incredible possibilities to join in an assembly of believers, walking beside each other, sharing our toil and troubles, our griefs and losses, but also sharing our celebrations and our joy. Faithing and churching. It's what we are called to do. It's what we are designed to do. It's what we are meant to do in this life. Faithing and churching expands horizons and gives value to life, makes our life abundant. Let's pray. Father God, what a blessing that we are made in your image, called to faith together to learn how much we are loved. And what a blessing that you have designed us to church together, assembling in many and varied ways to be your people and to share your love to the world. By your spirit, we pray that you would guide us, teach us, prod us to grow in this place. For we ask it in Christ's name and all God's people said, amen. Amen.